two of the contract, the Canadian owners pull out. They close the mine. Everybody has to vacate. Contractors, employee, everyone. So that time, I've now bought a 7 million rand mansion in Santin, Branston. The kids, international schools, doing, you know, French as second language. Life was soft. I didn't know that this was going to happen in year two. Then, like, the rug was just pulled out of my feet. Now I have kids. I have three kids. I have a house. I even had a butler. So I was living in South Africa. We call it a soft life. <laughs> so life, life was good. Then when this happened, I think I had to downgrade. The first to go, obviously, was my beloved butler, Robert. Zanele Motome has experienced the highs and lows of entrepreneurship like few people I have ever met. She went from winning mining tenders and living in a huge house with a butler to broke and back at her childhood home. But that did not keep her down as you will soon find out. My name is Nick Haralambis and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Welcome back to It's Not Over. You know who I am and sitting with me today is Zanele Matome. Zanele, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm good in you, Nick. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. We're in vastly different places. You're in Johannesburg where it's starting to get hot, I think. And I am in London where it's cold. So <laughs> there we go. So as way of introduction, why don't you tell myself and the listeners who you are and what you do and how you ended up where you are? Okay. My name is Zanele. I'm from Rustenburg in a small town in South Africa, but currently staying in Joburg. So I'm a founder of a health tech company called Welo. But before Welo, I think that's, that's the story that I want to share with you guys, that how did Welo come about? So Welo, how it came about, it was not something that I would have imagined in my wildest dreams. So when I started, I was an entrepreneur since 2003. I was in my 20s. I'm now 41, so I've been, <laughs> I feel very long in the tooth. <laughs> so I started in my 20s doing construction. Then from construction, I started doing mine contracting jobs. So that's where you get a contract with a company like your Anglo or your Northam Platinum, etc. So before they extract the ore from underground, contractors like us will come and do things like drill and blast, come with explosives do drill and blast underground, and there would be other contractors doing something that you call secondary support. Now that the explosions have been done, the rock is shaky and the ore has been extracted. Somebody has to support the rock. That's where I came in with my company called Basadi at that time. So I did that from, yeah, for a long time, in 2003, 2008, up to 2016. So, and dealing with different mines around South Africa. Then in 2016, I had a very lucrative contract at a mine in Rustenburg for five years. Yeah, two of the contract, the Canadian owners pull out. They close the mine. Everybody has to vacate. Contractors, employee, everyone. So that time, I've now bought a 7 million rand mansion in Santin, Branston, the kids, international schools, doing, you know, French as second language. Life was soft. I didn't know that this was going to happen in year two. Then, like, the rug was just pulled out of my feet. Now I have kids. I have three kids. I have a house. I even had a butler. So I was 
living in South Africa, we call it a soft life. <laughs> so life, life was good. Then when this happened, things I had to downgrade. The first to go, obviously, was my beloved butler, Robert. He had to go. The staff had to go. And then the cars. Remember those were your Mercedes Benzers, you know, bank-owned cars got repossessed. I handed over some cars and the others got repossessed by, by the bank. And I was left with an old Corsa Skadonki that was 100,000 kilometers to the clock, the one that you used to buy bread with. <laughs> Then from there, it means now I have to take the kids out of international schools. That's the next step now. Have to take the kids out of expensive schools. Now I can now pay that house because my plan was that, okay, this is a five-year contract. By year three of the contract or year four, I would have finished paying it off because I'm self-employed. You know, it's not like you can do a 20-year bond, a mortgage bond. Then I had to move back home to Rustenburg back home to the bedroom that I last used when I was in high school. Now I'm coming back with three kids in tow. Had to move back to my mom's house in Rustenburg. I had to lose the house. And I just went into depression. I went into depression uh, for about two years. It was a very dark period in my life. All I wanted to do was to wake up, make sure that the kids go to school and go back and sleep again. And the kids were also struggling because it was, it's three kids. The other one was at, at Montessori Nursery School. It's, it's not much of a, a culture shock, but those two were in uh, primary school and high school international schools. Remember now they were doing French as their second language. Now they're forced to do Africans as their second language, which they've never done before. But because those were the schools that I could afford when I was back at my mom's home, because my mom was the one helping me. I didn't have a salary. So in that two years of depression, I was like, okay, Zanele, you have to snap out of it. You have kids, you're an entrepreneur. What can you do? Like I had a meeting with myself. I was like, okay, what can I do? But this time I want to do it differently. I don't want to be at the mercy of Nick, who's a procurement officer somewhere, or Lerato, who's a mine manager, or some politician to get contract, because that's the type of business I knew, you know, getting contract, you know, building relationships, networks, and things like that. I said, I want to build something that I build from scratch, something that's sustainable, something that it's scalable, and something that I can take to the world, and something that I, I have control over. And then I started doing research, researching different industries. I was like, I don't want to do anything with mines or tenders or contracts, let me research. Then I came upon the tech industry. At first I was like, cause tech, I thought it was for nerds and you know, those people who are super intelligent and people that are boring and all of that. It's not, it's none of those things oh at all. Gosh, it's, it's, it's for idiots. It's for idiots like you and me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so me being me, I was like, no man, this tech industry, this is where you can build. This is where you can have something scalable and take it to the world. And, you know, you report to your end users, be it at home or in the workplace, but you report to end users whether your thing is crap or not. And then I started researching, okay, where's the genesis of tech? For me, it was Silicon Valley. Then I said, okay, I need to go to Silicon Valley. I'm a type of person, all or nothing type of person. I said, okay, I need to learn about this. I need to learn about this industry and I want to go to Silicon Valley. 
but I'm broke. So then I started going to my friends, you know, my ex-friends in business. Hey, uh, can you borrow me money for a ticket? Because I used to go to the US a lot in those soft days to attend Beyonce concerts. So I still had my visa. <laughs> I still had my 10-year travel visa. <laughs> so can you help me with money for a ticket? Nick, can you help me with money for accommodation? Lerato, can you help me with this? And nobody wanted to give me money because they're like, you go in there, you don't know a soul there, and you just want money to go and research. You're not even going to pay us back. So no, we can't help you. Then I got into an accident, as fate would have it, that old Kwasa Skadonki car that I still had, I got into an accident with it. It was a write-off, but I came out unscathed, and the insurance gave me 35,000 rands. And I was like, yes, this is my ticket. I'm going. <laughs> I was like, no, this is it. I'm going to San Francisco. Uh, you know, US is expensive. But I know that with this one, 14,000 rands at that time, that was 2019. 14,000 rands was going to cover my return ticket. And the rest was going to cover my Airbnb, at least for a month. Although I booked my return ticket for me to come in three months time, I was like, for the remaining two months, I'll see, but at least I'm covered for the first month. Then I went there. My mom was not very happy about it. She was like, you know that 35,000 rent, you can pay yourself 2,000, 2,000 per month stipend until you get up on your feet. And I was like, no, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I use this money on this. So what am I going to do in San Francisco? I said, okay, I'll create my own incubator program. You know, there's a website called Eventbrite, where if you go to Eventbrite, There'll be an event in Palo Alto, the event in Market Street, some of them $10, $5, some of them for free, workshops with, on startups, many events. So I did that when I was still at home. I, would, I did my own itinerary where I would say, okay, on this date in the morning, I'm here, I'll register for this free event or for this $10 event. During the day, I'll be here. At night, I'll be here. I won't even struggle with food because I'm going to eat there. So I'll save. <laughs> <There's no. laughs> that is so smart. I like, I'm irritated that I haven't thought about this as a solution for eating when you travel is go to Eventbrite events exactly. and just eat the free food that they've catered for. Exactly. That is wildly smart. Like if you're a founder listening and you complain about not having food, just go to an Eventbrite event and eat oh their food. Gosh, that is exactly. so smart. <laughs> So I would attend events at Twitter, you know, Uber and other events. To interrupt you here, did you have any network in Silicon Valley? No, not at all. So like, I haven't been to Silicon Valley in a very long time, but I have lots of friends who live there and ex-South African entrepreneurs who are there. So it would be like, oh, cool, let me go hang out with some mates. Exactly. You literally just pitched up on your own and were like, fuck it, I'm going to go and find all these things that I need to find to build the rest of my life. Exactly. I didn't know anyone in San Francisco. It was my first wild. time in San Francisco. I thought I had a high risk profile. Your <laughs> risk profile seems to be higher than mine. That's crazy. <laughs> Okay, so now you're, you're going to Twitter, you're going to Uber, you're at Eventbrite, you're in Silicon Valley embedding yourself in the world of tech so that you yes. can get a feel for it. Is that right? Exactly, so that I can get a feel for it and so that I can know, know what is tech, you know, from people who are there. And I, I met with like your investors. I met with peers, people who are in the industry. Startup. I attended some events in Stanford. And I remember I even attended a female founder event 
at uh, YC. I didn't even know about YC at that time. And ironically, at that time, there was actually a South African in the YC batch, um, one of the co-founders of well, one of the first employees of Yappy Chef, Paul Galatis, he took his business names and faces to Y Combinator in about 2018. Oh my gosh, if only I knew, hey? <laughs> wild, yeah, wow. wild. Wow. Sorry, carry on. Yes, yes. So then I, I also, you know, discovered something called founder offices, yeah, which I didn't even office know hours. of. Mm. Yes, office hour, yes, where you would say to somebody from Amazon, you know, for an hour, you'd say to somebody and they would advise you and things like that. Because I come from a world of 40 page business plans. And now and I'm no transparency about and no conversations and no interviews and no anything. Mm-hmm. Everything is secret. Whereas in tech, it's the opposite. Oh yeah. man, it's so open. It's the opposite. Yeah. Like you can sit. Yeah. I remember my first pitch deck was at Uber HQ because I've met one of the head of partnership at one of the female founder events. So people there, like they are free, you free to meet with such people. You don't have gatekeepers where I have to speak mm. to your mm. PA. And the PA say, no, who are you, et cetera. So it was such a nice culture that that I got there and that I'm also doing in South Africa where I'm open to entrepreneurs and say, hey, on Sundays, please, let's let's have a chat. You can ask me anything and all of that. I can help you with your deck and things like that. Because that's what they did for me. My first one was at Uber HQ where I was practicing on that team with a deck because I knew business plans and now you learn in the world of pitch decks and all of that. And then as money started to write to run down now, I was like, okay, now I don't have money for accommodation. What do I do? And a friend that I made there said, no, you can get an under the table job. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> and he said, no, where you get, yes. <laughs> a little bit of a cash, cash under the uh, table, no yeah, tax. I come yeah. from middle class South Africa. <laughs> we don't know those things. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I can do that. But I want a job that is aligned to what I came here for. So yep. I said, okay, I'll look for a job at a startup. So I went to the startup. They do events. They do startup events for your Google or Facebook where your Jake, Jason Kalakanis will come and do workshops and there's pitch practice all and all of that. So I spoke to the founder and told him my situation and I said, you know what, I just want to afford my hostel living because now you can't even afford Airbnb anymore. Now you downgraded to hostels where it's four of you in a room. Oh my gosh, the culture shocks I was getting there. (laughs) (laughs) Four of you in a room and it's like $20 to $25. So he said, no, it's fine. I can give you $25. So what I liked about that job was that I was working there night shifts at night. So the events were at night. So before the event starts, I will welcome you guys. I will mop the floor first. Mop the floor, make sure that the place is clean. Welcome you guys, the delegates, give you your tags, your water, etc. And then I As attend. someone who used to have a butler, these are not things you were used to doing, oh mopping gosh. floors and welcoming guests through oh doors, right? Oh my gosh, right? like, yeah, it was something very, very new to me, wow. especially the mopping part, yeah. <laughs> then, then afterwards, I would attend the event with the, with the startups, with the founders, I would attend and get the learnings, do the pitch practice, etc. Then when everybody leaves, then I will clean up again and lock up. So in the morning, I would attend the other events. Maybe it would be in Palo Alto, Stanford, etc. And during the day, another event, be it office hours or and all workshops. Then at night, I would attend the event at work. 
And that money would afford now my $25 for the hostel. So that's how I stayed the whole three months in San Francisco. That's amazing. And before we move on, I want to ask a very practical question, a couple of very practical questions. Mm -hmm. So the first is you seem to be a very natural entrepreneur. So this is a strange question from somebody who's also not formally educated as an entrepreneur, but do you have any training at all about anything to do with business or entrepreneurship? No, I did. I went to university for two, I dropped out on my second year. I studied communications. Then in my second year of uh, varsity, that time it was still Rand Africans University in, in Auckland Park. So I sat with my mom and I was like, you know what, mama, all my spare time when I'm in Joburg here is either I'm at Nazareth gate crushing business events or in Santin or in Rosebank gate crushing and attending business events. I love entrepreneurship. So can we have a deal? Can I come back home to Rustenburg? try this entrepreneurship thing. If it doesn't pan out in three years, I'll come back and finish your degree. So that's how I, then she agreed. Then I packed my bags, dropped out, went back home in Rustenburg. And that's how I started in construction. That's amazing. My parents didn't let me drop out. They refused. So I had to study my degree and then go and do business. That's incredible. So you have this natural flair for it. So that kind of answers the questions that I'm going to ask you now, but you make it sound really easy. I wanted to be in Silicon Valley, so I flew there. I wanted to meet the investors, so I met them. I wanted a job in tech, so I got one. I, <laughs> let's just True. focus on the investors. Yes. How exactly did you get a meeting with an investor? Because you have no business, you have no mm -hmm. idea, you have no prospects, you have no network. Yes. Did you literally just go, oh, let me phone Sequoia Capital no. or Bessemer Ventures? What mm -hmm. did you do? Yes. So with investors, it was just getting meetings and talking to them. I was not selling anything. So it was getting meetings after you network with them at events. And it was Okay. Not, so that was yes. the key. The pivotal yes. thing was you went to events where events. they were and then made your presence known. Exactly. There was no way I would just walk in or even cold email without even have a deck or even a business to speak of. So it was Perfect through networking. Advice. Yes. That's exactly the answer I was looking for because everybody always assumes my idea is so clever that I'm going to phone the investors and oh, they're going to want me to meet with them. I and wish. it's just not true. I've mm -hmm. spent 10 years in cultivating a network of investors. So then that kind of, the, the second question is kind of similar. You needed a job, which I actually respect. And I've, I've done the same. When I was uh, 20 years old, I went to America and worked there and did a couple of under the table things to get extra cash from my official job. Um, but how did you just get that job? Because I know for a fact that Americans are very weary of that kind of offer. You can't just come out and go, hey, pay me, but don't pay tax on me. So exactly. how did you practically get that job? I think that one as well is also through attending an event because I attended an event with another founder and that founder introduced me to the CEO of that. And the CEO was also a founder like myself. So he understood, you know. The, yeah, but it Ooh, was also, there is like this language between you. Yes, eh? but it was mm. also through intros. It was also through intros. Hey folks, Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation. And I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way. Please, right now, stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google or YouTube then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, back to the knowledge bombs. 
Okay, so now you you spend three months there, you mopping floors, doing the hard grind, getting to know mm-hmm. people. To mm-hmm. what end? Then I came back to South Africa because after three months, I was like, okay, now I've established relationships, people that I can come back to now when one is ready. And now also, you know, I have established relationships with founders because that's so important. I think people mostly, they, they concentrate on having relationships with investors only, but your founder community, those are the guys that you call when you want to hire that, hey guys, I have this CVs for developers, help me sort this out, things like that, mm-hmm. you know, at no cost, cause you like, you're the same breed, you, those are mm-hmm. your tribe. So when I came back, I was like, okay, now I'm ready. I think I will make it in tech. Now I can build. So that's what I did when I came back. And when I started, I started a company where we did deliveries. So it was called Yisa, where we were going to deliver everything from medicine to clothes, you know, those, those people who sell on Instagram. It was right uh, during COVID 2020. Clothes, medicine, weaves, and all of those things using bicycles and motorbikes. But then I went back to the drawing board and I was like, just like in the mines, I operate better when I have a niche and where it has something that has impact. Of the whole list that I've drawn up, what has impact? What can I craft into a niche so that I can take it to market? Then I took out the food and the weaves and all of that. And I was left with medicine delivery. That's how I stuck onto delivering health, medicine delivery. And then I changed the name now from Yisa to Welo, which is something that I learned in San Francisco that keep your name short and punchy and memorable. So I wanted to play with the word wellness. And I took the word wellness and came up with the word Welo to just make it short and punchy. And so it comes from the word wellness. And then that's how I now I started. But starting was not easy as well because now you're starting from scratch, scratch. That's what, what I usually tell people that starting is not easy, but I prefer that I start and investors will find me on the way. Even if I don't have an app because people want things to be perfect and shiny before they start. I believe in starting, then you build as you go. So I said, okay, I can start this, but it means I have to leave Rustenberg. I have to go back to Houghton because that's where you can pivot. But Houghton, I don't even have money for a flat, etc. Let me go and stay with relatives in Soshanguve, which is a township in Pretoria. So I stayed with relatives in Soshanguve and started Welo. So with Welo, when we started, it was medicine delivery. So at first, the target was medicine delivery for people who use this camp, the people in the suburbs, in Pretoria, etc., so that we can go and pick up Onyobia because it was right in the throes of COVID. But surprisingly so, I started getting calls from people who use public health care. They will call and say, I get my ARVs from George Mukari, or I get my kids eczema medication every month from George Mukari. But whenever I go there, because it's public hospital, I have to be there from 5 a.m. and only leave at 2 p.m. And I'm a blue collar worker. It means no work, no pay. So I'm losing a lot. But I still have that, have to get that medication because it's life saving medication for me or for my child. And they will say, do you also service us? And I said, you guys were not part of the plan, but I'll come back to you. Let me go and speak to the hospital and here they'll give us permission. And I spoke to the hospital. They said, no, as long as you have a consent form from these people, that time we manual, manual, manual. As long as you have a consent form from these people, we can come and collect on their behalf. Wow. 
I want to. I actually want to pause on that because it's such an important and pivotal inflection point in this business and as a service that you're providing. That I want to make it clear the value proposition to people listening is: if you have medicine and you don't collect it on that day, you don't get your medicine. But if you do collect it on that day, you don't get work to be able to afford the medicine. So people who are collecting their own meds in public institutions, government institutions, are actually stuck. They're either going to lose their income or lose their medicine. And that is a choice that they, they literally can't afford financially or with their health. And the thing that I love about the business side of the story is you said you're not waiting for perfect. You're going to put it out there. You don't need an app, whatever. You started with who you thought your customer yes, was. True. You operated in that space. Mm-hmm. And then the people started to tell you what they needed and you listened. And that is such a key observation that most founders never get to. They go, no, 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 this is how I want you to use my product. This is how I want you to use my product. And what you went was, hold on, how can I help you? Mm -hmm. Oh, this is how I can help you. Let me help you. And it's such a pivotal thing that if you are a founder, shut up and listen. Just listen to what your customers are telling you. And then you have a business. So you now get permission from hospitals. They just say you need a consent form. And I imagine you literally have a consent form that yes. is written down mm-hmm. from someone. Type it down from the internet cafe because I didn't have a laptop. <laughs> yeah. So I typed it down and had the people sign the consent form. And I was like, okay, the first time I used to go with a taxi, I would go get on a taxi at least at four or half past four a.m. But it's safe because there are people in the townships who work in the morning. I would get on that. So that 5 a.m., I met the hospital queuing on their behalf. And you were physically doing the queuing yourself? I was doing it. I was doing it. Wow. One of the reasons I was doing it as well was that when I started doing this, I used to hand out flyers in the traffic lights and flyers were not working. Flyers were not working, you know. Then I said, you know what? Let me go and get people at that pain point. Let me start going there. So that when, and this is now when you know that the, this is your customer. Yes. You, you figured out that they yes. want you to stand in the queue for them yes. and get the meds. Exactly. Now you're thinking, how do I get to these people? Mm-hmm. Let me get on a taxi early in the morning and go and queue with them and go and spread the word there. So I started doing that, you know, going there. Then in 5 a.m., I'm already at the hospital. Then in public hospitals, they have a prayer time. The prayer time starts at 6 so before six, I asked the nurse for permission to just talk to the people for 30 minutes. Then I will stand up. Hi, my name is Zanele. I'm from Welo. You're speaking Zwana. You know, go, go. You don't have to wait anymore. We can do this for you. This is my cell phone numbers. I will g- dish out my cell phone numbers to everyone. I even used to take videos of those early days. Then I will do that and people will sign up. I will do that Monday to Friday. I will do that. Then the delivery part of it, I hooked up with the guys that do deliveries for your Uber Ease, deliveries, master deliveries and things like that. And say, hey, Abu Joe, can you please deliver this medication to this address? Then I'll pay you per delivery. So there was no need to buy scooters or to start from scratch. Because remember, I was bootstrapping. So it was just paying itself. But that bootstrapping requirement means that you've got a really interesting business model because you don't own cars, you don't have breakage, you don't pay for petrol, you don't need to employ anyone. All you're doing is linking customer's product to customer through an existing service already, which is just so smart. And so tell me, how are you charging your customer at this point? I mean, because if if the customer is getting government-issued ARVs, 
they probably can't afford to pay you a lot for this. I thought that as well. And I made a huge mistake by competing with your Uber prices, forgetting that Uber has long money. So when we started, yeah, exactly. So we started, I charged them 35 friends because I was thinking like you as well that, you know what, let me make it 35 because Uber is around 32. Let me make it 35 friends because these people cannot afford. I assumed that. And first month, yo, I know I was not making any profit. Cause and I just to be, to put that in dollar terms, that's less than $2 that exactly. you were charging for these people to receive their medicine without waiting, which in a queue would normally cost them six hours of their time. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Then I was not making money and all of that. Like most of the money, if not all, was going to the scooter guy. So then I, I went back to the drawing board and I said, I had a like calls with our customers. That time, I think it was, we were sitting at 45. I had calls with the customers and say, guys, I have to increase the rate. To, for me to succeed and for you to get your medication, we have to go from 35 rand to 79 rands per delivery so that it covers everything. And that's the money that you, you use anyway when you use the taxis and you buy food when you're at the hospital. And one of the goggles says, you know what? We love this service. Even if you can charge us 120 rands, we still want this service. And that's how we got from 35 rand to 79 rand delivery. Which is a 60% increase and your customers just went, okay. Yes, yes, because we, we were competing on price. Yeah, when you have product market fit, you can charge anything, hey? It's just proof that I know so many entrepreneurs who struggle and struggle and struggle and never find product market fit. When you find it, the customer is like, I'll pay you whatever you want. This is so good. True. Exactly. That's exactly. incredible. Okay. And so then what? Then I moved to Jobek now. I moved to Jobek. We're now getting closer to Jobek. And then I started building in public, which is something that I learned in the States because, you know, I'm not a techie. Oh, before moving to Jobek, then I said, okay, let's have a WhatsApp chatbot. A WhatsApp language is the language of the masses. So let's have a WhatsApp. Let's move now from paper and all of that. Have a WhatsApp chatbot. How do I get that? Then since I was building in public, you know, I reached out to the Twitter community and a guy came into my DM and said, no, we can build you a WhatsApp chatbot for less than 5,000 rands. And I was great, fantastic. The guy is based in Durban. Then he built a WhatsApp chatbot there where you could just say hi and do everything until the payment part. But with payment and dealing with people in the township, they don't want to give you their card numbers. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's a, a bit of trust issue, especially if it's new clients. They're like, yo, we're going to be scammed, et cetera, et cetera. And then going back to the drawing board again and say, okay, people in the township, they use money market, shop right, money market a lot and things like that. Let me speak that payment language. Okay, then Boxer I called... payments or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Then I called ShopRite head office and they linked me up with the company that they've outsourced to do those payments. Then I speak with the company and we sign up with them and they say, no, we'll even give you access to Boxer, Pep Store, you know, the companies that they work with. So that now once you're done with the chatbot, you get a, an SMS that you can go take that SMS and go and pay at your nearest ShopRite, nearest Boxer, so and things smart. like that. Yeah. So it was just reiterating as we go on the ground. And then as we continue working, we're like, okay, now we want to go for the B2B market. How can we service them and be their last mile partner? So for the B2B market, 
what we were doing was that because that time people were doing digital consultations, doctors. And I said, okay, we can go to the GPs and say, once you've done your digital consultation with Nick, we can be your last mile partner on the ground and send our well geekness to go and collect blood or go and collect Nissan saliva sample, etc. So that you as Dr. Lerato, you don't have to pay a full-time nurse 35000 You can't afford that. But if you have access to a nurse on demand, you even get more clients. This is one of those very irritating ideas that I listen to and I'm like, I can't believe nobody has done this before. I can't believe that you were the first person to do this, that it's, it seems like such an obvious problem that you've solved for so many people. I'm so amazed that you are the first person to do this and that it's worked so well. Like, it's incredible. It's incredible that you've done this. And it's been done, but by, you know, I call it the people who use facts, like your freelance nurses <laughs> who have their own cars and they have, you know. Not at scale. It's yeah, been not done, at but not as, a, not as tech scale. And I think that's the thing that is make like this whole story now makes so much sense to me. And people listening can obviously hear that I'm hearing this for the first time too. Mm. The, the way that you've closed this loop so brilliantly from oh, I lost everything. I'm going to bet everything to go to Silicon Valley to understand this tech feeling. Yes. And it, the way when you said that, I was like, oh, I don't buy it. But mm. actually, because I've been in it for so long, I don't realize that when you come from outside of it, there is this feeling. There is this feeling that anything yeah. is infinitely scalable, that any problem can make you wealthy, that anybody's problem can be solved. And you only get that feeling when you go to the Mecca for tech. Exactly. When you go and see what that's like. And now I understand why you went there. You suffered through that and you came back and went, what problems can I solve? Exactly it all, it all really makes sense to me with this new lens because you clearly are an operator and you know how to build things, but you didn't know how to build them like a tech person would. I didn't. So I didn't. It's just, I mean, this is just me, amazing. for me, business was not like this. Business was like a, a government moving. saying, yes, saying you must supply us with 20 liters of cold drink. You know, here's a scope of work. For me, <laughs> business was not starting things from scratch and solving a problem. Yeah. So tech is something else for me. Yeah. It's amazing. And so... You started in 2019 into COVID? Yeah, no, 2020, 2019 was the trip. You started in 2020, yes. You started in 2020 in COVID, which, I mean, that that part of the story we've ignored because it's like now the most boring part. But Mm -hmm. everybody said to me, you can't start things when there's a recession. You can't start things when there's COVID. You can't start anything in a downturn economy. And you are proof that the opposite is true. So I love that. But was that tricky for you? Like, how did that affect how you built this business for good or bad? I think for me, COVID was a blessing because that's when people were panicking and they were like, we don't want to go out and doctors as well. They don't want to lose their clients. So for us starting a health company during COVID, maybe if it was another company, maybe selling cars or whatever, but a health company during COVID, it worked. I think the timing Timing was good. That's why I took out the delivery of weaves and food and all of that and focused on that. I think timing. Another super important point that you got to by iterating, and I think if I can observe anything in the 30 minutes we've been speaking, is your ability to rapidly understand what isn't working and viciously get rid of it. And I mean, that's a gift, hey? I know founders who spend decades not figuring out what they shouldn't work on. So my question is, why did you specifically focus on the medical stuff when there were so many other things that you could have chosen? Was it because it was more high volume, more pricing? Like, what was the reason you were like, oh, medical? 
I think with medical for me, I was looking for something that we can build in South Africa and take it to the emerging economies, your Latin Americas, things like that. Because if we have a shake and cuckoo in Soshangube, there's a favela in Brazil, same problem. It's the same in Nigeria. It's the same in exactly. Kenya. It's the same. So that's why, because I thought this one, if you can make it right here, then you take it out. Health, you can take it out. And then registered at Delaware C-Corp as well from day one, building for global growth. So that's how I did it. Then with B2B, the pivoting or the addition of B2B was like, okay, how can we get something that brings in more revenue now? And that's when I thought, okay, since we're using scooter drivers there, we can also use nurses because what I know is that nurses in South Africa, they have days that they're not working before days in, four days out. And Smart. people want to moonlight and make extra money. So if I pay you for the hour to go and do a drip, etc., then you're making money. But the reason nurses as well, because I wanted a nurse who has a car so that we don't have to transport you to the patient's home. And people trust nurses. Nurses are trustworthy in general. Exactly. They're in the medical space, so they've already got that understanding. And there is there is a very well-known concept that if you can build a business that helps other people make money, your business will make money. That's what I learned in the Valley as well. Mm -hmm. Really exactly. simple. Like Uber facilitates drivers to make money. Done. Simple. It's not rocket yeah. science. Exactly. No. Um, so before, I, I don't want to focus on the B2B too much because I'm still interested in the B2C. Have you spent any money on marketing at this point? No, no, but our, we're part of Grandstone Accelerator. So okay. as part of the Accelerator, they say they'll give us money on marketing. But with all the projects that we got and all the clients, it was really mostly through building in public. Because when we clinched Discovery Medical Aid, which is one of the biggest groups here in South Africa, it was through somebody reaching out to us on the DM and we went to pitch discovery and we got an opportunity. So it was through building in public. But now we're becoming adults. The company is growing up. We need to do the adult stuff of marketing. And yeah. <laughs> I had a feeling that you hadn't spent any money on marketing. And that's why I asked. because yeah, And branding. Because Nick was telling me about branding. The marketing, the branding and the PR. It's something that founders often get very distracted with. Is, oh, we've got to have a shiny logo. Oh, we've got to tell people. We've got to be in media. But actually... Your business lives and dies on your customers telling their friends. Because if you can solve this problem for one person, really solve it, why would they not tell the person they work with who also is collecting medicine, who also has a cousin or a sister or a brother who's doing the same thing? So your marketing is just doing your service really well and then letting people find you. And often that's what a good business does when it has product market fit, oh. is why spend money on marketing? I'd like, I think you didn't, you didn't even try and your business is growing. And that's my next question is, can you tell me any kind of growth metrics now? How many customers do you have on a recurring basis? How many medical deliveries do you do? Anything that would give me some kind of scale? Okay. So when we started, it was just one province. And now we add, we Gauteng, KZN and Western Cape. So there's three provinces that we did, we're currently doing. And numbers, we started with about 430, then went on to 45, and now we add 79 per month, but only at one area because we didn't want to like do B2C until we have lots of nurses because that's our challenge currently. Lots of nurses. Now we're building a platform so that we have nurses on board. We have 8,000 people on a waiting list 
B2C, but we cannot service them because we don't have enough nurses nationwide. So now with the money that we fundraised, we're building a platform, we're getting a senior developer in, we've just employed Becoming a real startup. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So then, yeah, now we need that engine of nurses. It's interesting because now you're building a two-sided marketplace, right? Where you're trying to attract nurses and drivers and you're trying to attract customers. And then in the middle, you've got the businesses who kind of facilitate interactions with both. I I like, I love hearing how the story is unfolded. So tell me what's next for this business and you. So what's next? We fundraised our pre-seed, which was last year, also through Twitter and some investors reaching out to us. So we're building the team now, and now we've, we're raising our seed round of 700,000 USD. We've already gotten one, one investor on board two weeks back. So we're building the platform. I think to-do list, on our to-do list, build the platform. We've just been joined by a healthcare uh, systems architect. She's going to be working directly with our developer so that we can build the platform because she comes in now with the healthcare systems experience. And we're also having a clinician, a medical doctor, join us on board because it has been myself and the COO and the lady who's been in charge of nurses, who's in charge of recruitment. So now we're having these three people coming to join us on board so that we can you know the team can be beefed up. And then we want to have at least 1,000 nurses on our books. Currently, we're sitting at 180 nurses on our books for these three provinces. Because also with Discovery, we will get a call where we say, can you go and service a client in Northwest or in Limpopo? And then we have to say no, because we don't have capacity and reach there. So now, because nurses are our engines. So now we have to get as many nurses as we can and as many uh, scooter delivery bikers as we can outside of these three provinces that we operate in. So now we're at that uh, boring stage of growth now. <laughs> That's, that is really, really incredible. Nick, who introduced us, was not wrong. This story has been absolutely riveting to listen to. So I think I'm going to ask you a final question before I hand over to you to tell people where to find you and follow you. Through these ups and downs, what I've written down here is from personal butler to broke. Um, <laughs> what, um, <laughs> what have you learned over the last four years that you now carry with you going forward as you build this business? I think what I've learned in this past four years is that you can always start from scratch, but surround yourself with the right people. I come from a type of business or environment where it's me, myself, and I, and you know, you work as a solo entrepreneur and all of that. So what I've learned from, from tech is that there's so much net, have your networks reach out. You don't have all the answers reach out, surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and just keep building, keep reiterating. And, you know, they're not right answers, but, you know, leave your ego at the door. Leave your ego at the door. If something is not working, change it, listen to the right people, change it and test it. I think what I'm loving about tech is the testing part of it because now we have a, a new product that we're going to be bringing in next year called Wello Care because we saw that the people that you've been saving in the townships, they are the unhealth. They cannot afford your discovery or your big medical aid companies, but also they're earning 5,000 rands or something, and they're already paying the stock fails. In South Africa, we have stock fails, you know, funeral covers, 
300 rands per month, 250 per month, and they will love a healthcare product that they can pay for. An affordable healthcare product. Exactly. Mm. And we don't even call it insurance. It's going to be in like a voucher. So what I've learned from tech is that the power of experimenting and yeah, because yeah. we don't want to run an insurance company. Yeah, so we're of course. Voucher. No, of course, of course. It seems like you've unlocked the superpower of yourself. That, that power of experimenting, it seems like tech has helped you realize that actually that's your superpower, is your ability to completely let go of your ego and go, oh, that didn't work. Fuck it, let's build this thing. Oh, that didn't work. Cool, let's build this thing. Oh, that did work. Let's double down there. Exactly. And it's it's a gift, yeah. being able to recognize that in yourself. And it seems like you can thank tech for that. Yeah, I know, man. I know, I thank tech. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's incredible. So in closing, please tell people where they can find you, where they can follow you. If you want them to contact you, send them some information and where they can find Wello. Okay. So our website is www.wello.health. And on Twitter, I'm Zanele underscore Matome. And for Wello on Twitter as well is Hello Wello. There's a Hello underscore Wello. And we also on LinkedIn as Hello Wello and Zanele Matome on LinkedIn. And yeah, so if you want, especially if you're a founder and you want to reach out and you know, you're going through your ups and downs and all of that, you can drop me an email at Zanele at Wello.health. I'm always open to just speaking with founders and yeah, my tribe. Incredible. I will link to all of that in the show notes. And look, this story has more than almost anyone on my show so far absolutely floored me. Your resilience and ability to embrace failure and iterate is just second to none. And I have no doubt that for you in Wello Health, it's not over. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much. <laughs> Bye, Nick. <laughs>